Well, good morning, everybody. Again, my name is Joe, and I'm the built-in campus pastor here at Crossroads, and it's my privilege to be able to share with you today. And uh, you may have noticed the last couple of weeks, Pastor Sam and Sarah and all the kids are out of town, and uh, they've traveled back to Kentucky, their home state, to be with family. And uh, how many know when you're traveling with four children, uh, you're going to need to stay a while. So uh, I think they're watching this morning. So hey, Pastor Sam and Sarah, we love you guys, and we can't wait to see you uh, next week when you all get back. But I'm saying y'all because I know where they're at. And so, but uh, hope you guys are rested and having a great time with family and friends. I hear they actually have real fireworks in Kentucky. I saw some pictures texted to me, but uh, we're stoked for you guys. And uh, we're jumping back into the book of John today. So you're going to need a Bible and a note sheet because um, in order for you to track along today, we're going to read a lot of text today. So if you don't have a Bible, you don't own a Bible, you're like, what is a Bible? We want you to have one or borrow one. And so if you need one, just put your hand in the air. And we've got a couple guys back there that could resource you. If you've got a smartphone, the YouVersion Bible app is absolutely cool. It's got all different types of translations and transliterations and paraphrased versions for you to be able to track along. If you're a Bible geek or not, it'll even read to you. So you don't even have to read. So you have no excuse is what I'm getting at. So check that out. Grab a sermon note sheet. If you didn't give one of those uh, on your way in, just raise your hand and we'll try to get one to you ASAP so we can all track along. We're going to be talking about basically the entire sixth chapter of the book of John. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of John. If you're new to this whole Christianity thing and Bible thing, start actually towards the back of the book and then turn left and you'll find it a lot faster. But we're going to read, <clears throat> excuse me, I was singing my lungs out in worship, and so I got really excited, and so I'm going to need a bottle of water again. I totally downed the one from first service, and uh, I'm used to singing, not yelling. Um, but anyway, um, thank you guys in the back. So John chapter 6, we're just going to jump right in. Is that okay? A couple weeks ago, Pastor Tyler did an amazing job talking about Jesus walking on water, and we kind of skipped over Jesus feeding the 5,000 and all that stuff. So we're going to talk about a lot this morning. And the reason why we did that is because the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then the end of chapter 6, thank you, Tony. Awesome job on sound this morning. It was epic. Um, the reason why we did that is because these stories are so connected. We didn't feel like it'd be the right thing for us to do as a church to talk about one story, then talk about another story. So it's really all one story here in chapter 6 that I'm going to be focusing on. We've got a lot to get through, so we're just going to jump right in, okay? Do you have your Bibles? Now, don't shoot the preacher this morning. For you Bible babies um, and people who have been around the church a long time, we're going we're gonna to skip over reading John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, where Jesus feeds the 5,000, okay, and walks on water. We're going to skip over that, so don't get mad at me. We're going to come back and talk about it, but really, we've got so, we can't just sit here and read all 66 verses. We never get out of here, and some of us need to go to lunch. Um, so, but we are going to come back and talk about it. So hang in with me. We're going to start and pick up the text today. We're going to pick up the story in verse 22, and then we are going to come back and talk about what Jesus did to feed the 5,000, that amazing miracle, uh, like the most epic church potluck picnic you could ever imagine. We are going to talk about it, okay? Verse 22, we're going to read, and we're going to read a lot, okay? So I'm going to sit down because I'm going to need to save some strength because I still got to speak tonight at Live at Five in Lompoc, okay? You guys with me? Ready? Are you stoked like me, or are you just, okay. Um, chapter, 20, uh, ch chapter 6, verse 22, here we go. I'm the bread of life. 
On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. So, so the disciples go across the sea without Jesus. Jesus is back on the mountain, okay? And so the crowd, after they had this amazing potluck, are just like, whoa, where's Jesus? Like, we really want to hang out with this guy some more because he did this amazing thing yesterday. It was amazing. A lunchable lunchbox turned into a huge potluck. It was crazy. And so they're like, where's Jesus? He's like, oh, he's got to be on the, other side of the, on the other side of the sea. The other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. They wanted to go find him. They found him on the other side of the sea. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, for the food that endures but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Verse 28, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent, whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? As if Jesus hadn't already done a sign. Remember this part. As if Jesus hadn't already done something amazing. As if Jesus hadn't already turned a little kid's lunch into food for 5,000 men, not including women and children. Give us a sign, Jesus. And then Jesus starts to get a little more direct. But they say, verse 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Sound familiar? Remember a few weeks ago? Remember the woman at the well? Never thirst again? But I said to you, verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up again on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son believes in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. And they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came from heaven, 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now Jesus starts getting really aggressive. Verse 52, then the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What is he talking about? What a psycho. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Say what? The actual Greek word for feed and eat here in the text is like literally to gnaw. So Jesus is like, unless you gnaw on my flesh and drink my blood, you're not going to have anything to do with me. Okay, Jesus, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. You don't, you don't say. Uh, Thanks, Jesus. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that, himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit. Come on, let's say Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. Say life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Almost done. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, the 12 guys who just saw him walk on water. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are holy. You are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Will you pray with me? Because we're going to need some help. We're going to ask God to help us this morning as we dive into these texts, this whole chapter, really, in the big story of what Jesus is trying to do. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you, and we thank you, and we hit the pause button in this moment after worship and songs and singing and reading a very, very long Bible text uh, just to ask for your help, to ask for your spirit to lead us and guide us into all truth this morning. And everything that we say and do this morning, may it bring honor and glory to you and good to this valley. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So um, um, uh, my wife and I, we lived in Ojai uh, for eight years. And Ojai gets, everybody knows where Ojai is. It's a little south in from Ventura. And Ojai gets a really bad rap because it's a little spooky and kooky and hippie and kind of weird. And uh, one year, uh, probably like 10 years ago, uh, we were at the 4th of July parade. And uh, it's a lot like the Solvang parade, just like 30 degrees hotter. 
Um, it's, it, it's hell. Um, but anyway, we're out there and we're watching. And so uh, the church that we served at for eight years um, in Ojai, uh, awesome church, great family. And uh, they uh, typically would have a, a float in the parade with like a worship band on there. And so for years they did that and then they stopped doing it. But then this other church started doing it. And so we're there watching. It's like 127 degrees out at 10 a.m. in the morning. So we're sweating profusely. And then here goes this poor church going by. They got their mute instruments all out there. The guitars are all out of tune because it's so hot. And but anyway, they're rocking out. And they're just like mighty to save. And it's so cool. And I don't know um, who organized the parade, but it's almost like they put everything like in too much order. They didn't think to spread certain things out. So they put like like all the nonprofits together. It's like, oh, here goes Rotary. Right, and they're waving and smiling. And then here comes Lions Club. And then they put all the, all the churches together. So here comes all the church floats. And so the, these two churches are like back to back and they both have bands on the float. <laughs> and so they're like competing in, with sound and like literally playing over the top of the, and so, so it's just so ironic, like the disparity in belief systems between these two churches, like the, the, one, the first church to roll by was like all worship music. Then the second church, like their band, they just went down to the local pub and like got the band, put them on the, on the float. And they were like literally playing like Jimi Hendrix and uh, Clapton. And it was, it was, I mean, they were clearly a better band. I'll give it to them. But, but anyway, um, along with this second church, um, I have no idea why they put those two, two floats together back in the end. Nobody thought about it, but, but the second church, their float, they had this guy circling the float dressed like Jesus, and he was carrying a sign. I can't remember what the sign said, but he was dressed like Jesus, and he had, he had, he had a wig on, and he had like a crown of thorns on, and he had a robe and sandals, and a good-looking young guy, and he's, and he's yelling into the crowd and like throwing, throwing candy out for the kids. Free food, free health care, free education, and like all this stuff. And, and at first I was like only mildly offended at this guy because I'm just like, okay, I was kind of reading between the lines of what he was trying to say. It was kind of weird. But like at a glance, you kind of go, okay, it's kind of cute. Like as if, if Jesus were here in the flesh, he would be, you know, he'd be feeding people, right? I mean, it's, it's not unreasonable to think that Jesus would feed people. Based on John chapter 6, Right? It's not unreasonable that if Jesus were here right now, he, we'd be having a church potluck and none of us would have to bake a side to come and be a part of it. Right? No, no one would have to eat terrible potato salad because Jesus would provide. Right? It's, un, it's not unreasonable to think that. On the surface, it looked cute at first. And the more I thought about it, the more I got offended. And I went home and I started thinking about it some more. I've been thinking about this guy for like 10 years. To this day, I still find myself an hour later, like snapping out of just zoning out in the shower, thinking about this guy and getting angry. Because the assumption was, and, and, and in a way he was casting shade at the first church's float. He was throwing shade as if Jesus, if Jesus were really here, these are the types of things Jesus would be talking about. So the assumption, sometimes with texts like this in John chapter 6, if we're not careful, we read John chapter 6, verse 1, the feeding of the 5,000, and we go, oh, wow, what a great story. What an amazing church picnic on the hillside that day next to a lake. So if Jesus were actually here, these are the types of things Jesus would be concerned with. And we close the book 
We don't read on. We don't read the whole context, the whole big picture of what Jesus was trying to communicate in this story. Do you see what I'm getting at? Sometimes we get ourselves in trouble theologically when we assume we've got it figured out. We assume that what Jesus really came to do was just to merely feed people, or at least just in John chapter 6. And if we're not careful, we, we extrapolate from other stories in the gospel, other stories about Jesus, where Jesus did amazing, miraculous things, but we don't put the whole picture together, the whole story together. And all we see is this social gospel Jesus where all he wants to do is help lift people out of poverty, lift people up in status and in so, in social circus so they can have representation, so they can have a, a place in government, so they can have a place in education, and so that they live, their lives might be better. On the surface, the guy at the parade makes a lot of sense. If one person in human history can actually do that for humanity on his own, his name's Jesus. If one person in human history can deliver the oppressed from their oppressors, it's Jesus. But that's not the whole story of John chapter 6. In fact, Jesus ends the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus perceiving that, maybe they had like, like a party of armed dudes ready to come, like you're gonna come be our king whether you like it or not, Jesus. So maybe perceiving that they were gonna do that, Jesus in his wisdom goes, I'm gonna withdraw again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus does something really interesting. He feeds the people. They're all amazed and blown away, blown away so much to the fact that he's so now so famous and so popular and so loved and adored, they actually want to make him king. 5,000 men, not including women and children. And Jesus says, nah, I'm going to bounce. I'm going to send my disciples across the lake and I'm going to go chill on the mountain by myself. Why? A little bit of backdrop to the story. Biblical scholars believe by all accounts of the four Gospels and Scripture and some other historical accounts, we talked a lot about this in our sermon prep this past Tuesday, where they believe that it was probably most likely that Jesus had just found out about his cousin John the Baptist's execution. His cousin, who, remember earlier on in, our, in our, our study of the book of John, a few chapters ago, I know that feels like a year ago, but it's really only a few months, John the Baptist was the first guy out in the wilderness talking about the Messiah, talking about the Son of Man, talking about Jesus, and then John identifies Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That guy, Bear Grylls guy out in the wilderness, you know, wearing fur and eating locusts and honey and bugs and stuff, that guy. Jesus' friend, Jesus' cousin, the man who prepared the way for Jesus. Word gets out that, well, King Herod had John the Baptist executed. Now, you know, all right, Pastor Joe, it's ancient times, 2,000 years ago. It's not uncommon for people to get their heads lopped off. I mean, this is antiquity we're talking about right here. Well, let me just get a little more grim. I know we've got little ones in the room, so we're not going to get too graphic in detail. But it must be stated that it was common knowledge in public circles that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, not only was his head lopped off, but it was served on a platter at King Herod's orgy. 
I don't want to go into more detail about the historical background, but you can paint the picture for yourself. Jesus, fully God, yet fully human, had to have been distraught. Put yourself in his shoes. How would you feel? What would you do? And so that's the backdrop to the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus' teaching is probably sharing something from his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which was very common for him to do. He'd preach these sermons, these principles, and people had never heard anything like it, and their minds were blown, and they're all hanging out. But now everybody starts to get hungry because they're out in the middle of nowhere. So it's an act of grace that Jesus would provide a meal when there was no meal and there was no money, there was no Costco to go run and grab a tray of sandwiches. So he takes a little boy's lunch of a couple of fish and some loaves of bread, and before you know it, the entire crowd has eaten their fill. They're completely stuffed. And there's 12 baskets left over. I don't know what happened to the 12 baskets, but they probably got made into croutons for lunch tomorrow with the salmon. A little bit of Caesar. But the story, the story is that Jesus was constantly trying to recluse. He was constantly trying to get away. He would serve and serve and give and give of himself so much. Even the disciples, the 12, were so like aggravated at times with Jesus because They'd want to send these people away. And no matter who would come to Jesus, not everybody, but every so often Jesus, we'd have an account in the Gospels where Jesus would do something miraculous. But he wouldn't do it for everybody, which is frustrating in and of itself. So even the disciples, the 12, were frustrated with Jesus and how much he would give and how much he would serve. And here we are, we pick up the story. And if we're not careful... We close the book and we assume we know why Jesus did what he did. Rather than acknowledging the gift, the gracious act of providing a meal miraculously for 5,000 men, not including women and children, as it is for what it is, an act of grace. Jesus constantly giving of himself, fully human yet fully God, yet dealing with the emotions and the tragic nature of the news that he'd received. It's dangerous, church, if we stop reading right here. And this is what the church historically, at large, has gotten in a lot of trouble with. If we just read John chapter 6, verse 1 through 14, we miss the bigger picture. So we're not going to do that. We're going to keep going. Amen? Are you with me? If we close the book, we might miss the true nature of what Jesus is trying to do. So they follow him across the lake because how many of you know, like when you gorge yourself, like you partied really hard the day before and you had a big picnic or you had a big lunch, you went to the steakhouse, the next day you're just like, oh, I'm not so hungry. But later on, you're just like, Lord, help me. I'm ravishingly hungry. The more you eat, the more hungry you get later on. You ever notice that? So that's why, like, you know, portion control is really important. That's free. Um, Verse 26 and 27, Jesus re-engages with the crowd at Capernaum. And then uh, they they come to him and said, Rabbi, uh, when did you get here? Like, how did you get here? Like, 
like this mysterious guy. It's as if you walked across the lake somehow because your boat left and you weren't on it. I don't know. So they come and ask Jesus, and Jesus doesn't even deal with anything other than what's on their hearts and minds. He reads their mail, and he says in verse 26, Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because of the signs you saw yesterday, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. If you thought Jesus was all about feeding people and feeding the hungry and being popular and being liked and being loved, and being appreciated, and being adored, and being worshipped. Think again. Jesus calls out the crowd's motive. He doesn't let them off the hook. He doesn't go, oh, my people, how did you find me? I'm so glad you're here. Let's sit down again. Let's rehash some sermons. I've got some old sermons. I'm I'm just loving that this crowd is here right now. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He rejects the popularity. He rejects he rejects the megachurch offer to be king, okay? And he calls out their motives. And then in verse 32, in verse 32, Jesus said to them, well, they bring up this idea like, like their forefathers. If you're, if you're familiar with the story of the children of Israel coming out of the exodus from Egypt and slavery from Egypt, they wandered around the desert for like 40 years with Moses and it was really crazy. And the, the thing about the desert is there's no food. And so God like, like miraculously would provide manna from heaven every day, but the manna wouldn't last. It would spoil every single day. So they had to depend on God. And what's crazy when you look at the map, it's like, wow, 40 years to go from Egypt to Israel. It's like, just go north, guys. What, like, what? It doesn't make sense. But anyway, so they're wandering out there because they're disobedient to God, and God's taking care of them. They're just like, hey, this is the new manna. Did you see what this guy did yesterday? We're having church picnics and potlucks every single day, and this is the guy to do it if we could just convince him to be our king. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So now they start to get a little confused. It's like true, like Jesus, bread's bread. Like, we're hungry. You fed us yesterday. Um, and, then, and then they even ask him, almost, almost like patronizing Jesus, well, what sign do you do? As if he hadn't already done a miraculous sign, and they couldn't quite figure out how he got to the other side of the lake, so he had to have, like, did he walk around? I don't know. So they start getting aggressive with Jesus a little bit. And then in verse 32, Jesus says, He's the true bread from heaven. And then verse 36, he says this. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And they're like, okay, Jesus, you're saying all these things, but we knew your mom and dad. So how could it be that you're from heaven? Like we... We, we, we've known you. People know you. How, how is this possible? And so he goes on in this discourse back and forth with them, and ultimately he drops this bomb in verse 53. We're going to go back to it. Their Jews are disputing amongst themselves. They're going to have this man give us his flesh to eat like I'm the bread of life. Jesus, what are you talking about? And then Jesus kind of gets a little disgusting. If you thought Jesus was all about just sprinkling fairy dust on top of every single topic he could possibly talk about so that you like him, so that you love him, Man, here's Jesus about to drop the bomb. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat 
the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds, whoever gnaws on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus got this back and forth going with these guys. They're not happy. They just want another meal. Jesus is calling them out. They're going like, Jesus, how could you be from heaven? Um, yeah, like we, we acknowledge the miracle you did yesterday for us, but, but we're here again. We're hungry. Like teach us more, do more, be our little monkey and dance. And Jesus says, eat my flesh. Translation, eat my shorts. Eat me. Literally, it's what he says. But he's getting at something deeper, and they just can't understand it. He's trying to explain, trying to communicate. And you would think by now, after a page and a half of text, they might be a little bit closer. And if you were assuming that Jesus would just say, I am the bread of life, I am the eternal life, people would just go, because we come from a very Christian culture, believe it or not. Things like that, the topic of I'm the bread of life, I'm, I'm life everlasting, I'm salvation. It's like, well, of course, Jesus just says that stuff, right? You would think, oh, Jesus, we love you. Like, yeah, okay, now it all makes sense. They stand and applaud him, and they bow down and worship him. Nope. Not even close. They go, we can't stand to listen to this anymore. We'll go get food somewhere else. They get back in their boats and they sail away when Jesus drops the bomb. They literally can't stand it. And Jesus goes on and on and on. And he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And to make things worse, he's saying this stuff in the synagogue. It'd be like me standing up here saying some pretty controversial things and you all just going, man, we're out of here. Never going back. So there's Jesus. He's in the synagogue. What's he really trying to communicate? What's Jesus really getting at? Number one in your notes in verse 63, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Number one in your notes, there is more to life than merely existence. Jesus doesn't want to keep talking about the flesh, to keep talking about food, to keep talking about human needs. He wants to shift the conversation for these people to eternity what true life, real life, really is. There's more to life than merely existing. And he says the flesh is of no help at all. You see, the thing about flesh, our bodies, the way we think, our material possessions, they all just get in the way. You ever notice that? You get, you get hungry all the time. You ever notice that? You can't stop eating. We try to stop eating, and we can't stop. Just try not to eat, ever. It doesn't work out so great, does it? Starvation sets in. Try not to drink anything at all. No water. Try not to sleep. Try not to have normal human relations. 
See how aggravated and upset you get. Can we get real this morning, guys? We get upset. It's in the way. And, and the Apostle Paul echoes what Jesus says and talks about it this way. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says, Their end in their flesh, their end is destruction. Their God will be their belly. Their God will be their belly. They glorify and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Earthly things. The flesh says, give me more. Give me sleep. Give me sex. Give me money. Give me control. Give me food. That's what our flesh says. And when you all amount to it, give me identity. When we add it all up, give me status. The more I have, the more I can consume. The more I can consume and have, the more I'll have a leg up. That's what the flesh says. That's what our bodies say in our natural state. And because the flesh is so powerful in our lives, our bodies have so much control over us, and Jesus is trying to do this spirit thing. We live in this constant state of dichotomy in our flesh, between our flesh and our spirit. And our culture, in case you haven't noticed, is consumed, obsessed, and dominated by a global conversation. The global conversation is the haves versus the have-nots. You ever notice this? Are you living under a rock? It's Right now, it's the haves versus the have-nots. It's, it's the who is more oppressed Olympics in culture. You ever notice this? See, the more oppressed you are or the more held down you've been or the, 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 the less you have, the more you should get. Because if your assumption is that life is all about having stuff, if that's all it's about, then that becomes your religion. And in today's world, if you have a legit gripe in society or culture or history or whatever, then they should just get what they want. That's the global conversation right now. Fun fact about Jesus in your, in your notes, number two. Jesus came to the most oppressed people group in human history and did not deliver them from their oppressors. He didn't do it. Jesus came to the most oppressed people group in human history. Name it all. Raping, pillaging, slavery. They had it all. The children of Israel had been through it all, and Jesus shows up as one of them and does not deliver them from their oppressors. Why? Could it be that this spirit thing that Jesus wants to do in the lives of human beings goes way beyond what you can have or not have in the natural? Could it be he's getting at something deeper? Could it be he wants to feed the souls of humanity not with his literal flesh, but wants to fulfill the deep longing desires inside of every single human heart with his heart. What if he wants to do so much more for humanity and he wants to deal with the flesh, but that's not all there is? Merely existing, drinking and eating and sleeping is what Jesus resisted 
So Jesus rejects the megachurch offer. Jesus says, I'm going to go to the other side of the lake. And if there was ever a moment where Jesus could have failed, this was it. 5,000 faithful followers, men, dare I say an army of men, not including their wives and children. Some 10,000, 11,000 people maybe. If there was ever a moment where Jesus could have abused his power, his control, his authority, which in and of himself being God had every right to do. If there was ever a moment where Jesus could have stumbled and made it all about his control, his power, his authority, his fame, his fortune, and start a revolution, raise an army against Rome to get his country back, this was it. And he doesn't because he doesn't want to sit on a throne of earthly throne where his people only value him for what they can get from him in the natural. He doesn't want to sit on a throne in a palace or a white house or at the head of a government or the head of a corporate table. He doesn't want any of that. Number three in your notes, the only throne Jesus wants to occupy is the throne of your heart. And he proves it. We don't look over the act of grace that God and his sovereignty and his provision and faithfulness provides everything we need in this life. Even when it's hard, from the food we eat to the rest we get, to the partner we have in life, to our families, to our communities, to our businesses, to our jobs, to our institutions, to our government. But that's not all there is, he says. What if there's more? What if he wants to fulfill the deepest longings of hunger in our lives? What if he wants to be everything? So the crowd dissipates and the lights go down on the scene and he, he turns to the, the 12 because that's all that's left at this point. And he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter speaks up because Peter always speaks up. He's that guy. Where else can we go, Jesus? Isn't it helpful that they just saw him walk on water? You ever notice this? Maybe you've been a believer for a long time. You've been in church for a long time. And you've been through some stuff with Jesus. You've seen him do some things in your life and you've been through some, some hard stuff and you look back in your life and you go, okay, God, like you were there. I know you were. When you've been through it with Jesus, it's hard to just walk away. You ever notice that? Don't you think it's supposed to be that way? And so the crowd, they didn't see Jesus walk on water, but they have no idea how he got to the other side. And they just saw a sign. And then 
the story concludes with this kind of like grim reality about Judas. And it's, it's the beginning of the end for Judas. You see, Judas, it was common knowledge. It's common knowledge throughout the Gospels that, that give the account that, that Judas was in charge of the money between Jesus and the 12 disciples. So he always had the purse. So he was like, he was like the CPA guy. So he was, um, and it's ironic that they never had money to pay their taxes because Judas was taking care of the money. So I wonder where all the money went. Um, so Judas has been embezzling. And now in the natural, imagine being Judas. You've got this mega church. Finally, it all comes together. All this wacky, crazy stuff Jesus has been saying and doing and teaching. And now we've got a crowd. We've got influence. We've got prestige. We've got rank and status in this kingdom that Jesus is going to establish that he keeps talking about. And Judas watches his ticket to success and fame and status and recognition and representation in the world go right down the toilet. It's right out the window. They had an army. They had a bank. You can pull a lot of money together from 5,000 dudes. <laughs> Certainly a lot more than what Judas was skimming off the top, right? All gone. Because Jesus won't fit in anybody's box. If you find yourself on the outside of Jesus' church, or on the outside of a government, or on the outside of any institution, criticizing and looking at it like, well, if Jesus were there, if Jesus were here, he would do it this way. If, you're, if you believe that, you're missing the whole picture, the whole story, that Jesus will not be crammed into our little boxes and our human institutions or our churches he only wants to be king of our hearts. He only is interested in occupying our minds and our hearts with his goodness and relying on him as the bread of life, that he's the only thing that can truly satisfy our souls, not our bodies. And if there was ever a moment in history where Jesus could fall and stumble into something that was not the will of the Father, there was this moment, and he doesn't do it. He handles it perfectly again. And here's the problem with Jesus for us that we have to wrestle with. This is a big problem. He's way too liberal for us. He's way too conservative for us. He's way too dogmatic. This Jesus guy, the things he says, I can't take it. He's offensive. He's too passive. Jesus, do something. He's too offensive. The things he says, the things he does, how could he just skip over some, heal others, feed some, perform miracles? He's too gracious. Why doesn't he lay the hammer down? Open up a can of you know what? This Jesus. He's just himself. 
He's just Jesus, and it's his spirit that gives life to those who surrender and those who believe. It's the spirit thing, spirit thing to satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. He only wants to occupy the throne of your heart. And so today, friend, the question is, if you find yourself standing on the outside, looking in at Jesus, disagreeing with everything he says and everything he did and, and how it's not fair, remember the cross once and for all. Not to satisfy human status, prestige, platform, recognition, or poverty. To satisfy for those who surrender and those who believe the deepest longings of our hearts. The hunger that we all walk around with in this life for fulfillment, for peace, and for rest. What really matters when we're not so distracted by our flesh is what he's after. Will you pray with me, church? God, as we just respond to this story today, God, our prayer is that we would truly surrender and believe that the bread of life that you offer humanity is enough. We don't need another sign. We don't need another church potluck. We don't need another miracle. Which all ultimately point to the cross. Your death and your resurrection. We don't need another sign. It's in the story of your goodness and your grace, yet another act of grace ultimately culminating in the work of the cross and your resurrection that we surrender and we're captivated that you are so concerned with being king of our hearts and not just king over all the elements that sustain us in this life. That there's more to life than just merely existing. There's more to life than just being having and having not and being delivered from our oppressors. There's way more. Help us to fix our eyes on the throne that lives on the inside of each and every one of us that you want to be inaugurated. King of Joe Moss of every single individual in this room and everyone listening to my voice this morning. God, you're faithful in this work to teach us what you're all about. And we thank you today. Seal this in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, church. Amen. Come on, would you stand and give Jesus one praise this morning? Would you just thank him? Thank you, God.